Hello, and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 59, where we go back to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and by standing Pharaoh Lad in the corner for best reception. <laughs> uh, we got a, a, well, we are doing one book, but this really is an event, mm-hmm. uh, a DC Comics event suggested by Luke Hollywood. This is at LJ underscore Hollywood on Twitter. Uh, good guy, longtime fan and correspondent of the show and weird science stuff. And uh, what we're doing today, Chris, is The Final Night, a four-issue weekly miniseries from DC Comics cover dated November 1996, with special attention paid to tie-in Parallax, Emerald Knight. Written by Ron Mars, penciled by Mike McCone, inks by Mark McKenna, colors by John Kalitz, letters by Chris Iliopoulos, edited and presided over by Eddie Berganza and Kevin Dooley, another, another pair presiding. Mm-hmm. It's a big thing at DC to write to preside over your book. Anyway, yes, had <laughs> a gavel. I understand. Cover I price. So, <laughs> cover price. Two ninety five USD. Four twenty five Canadian. Released September eighteenth, nineteen ninety six. In the specific. Mm-hmm. This is a uh, another uh, is another installment in that uh, that love letter to Hal Jordan that we never knew we were writing. That's right. Um, <laughs> but first, let's uh, let's tie up some uh, some. Uh, business from last week when we discussed Akiko. Uh, We received a tweet from the creator, Mark Crilly, which read, Wow, thanks for so much for doing this. It's a real honor. Greatly appreciate you choosing my comic. And we thank him. We're not sure if he listened, but Uh, 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 we thank him nonetheless. I I hope he did. I'm kind of having mixed feelings about it, as usual. You know what I mean? But uh, I think think we we paid a good uh, homage to it. You know, we did. uh, We had a good time with that one. So, uh, of course, what do we do here? We go right into the creator bios. But this time we're going to put them all up front, folks, for Ron Mars and Mike McCone. And also Mike McCone, we have almost no information. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, Ron Mars, born November 17th, 1965 in Kingston, New York. He was initially inspired by the great pulp writers like Edgar Rice Burroughs and Michael Moorcock. His first exposure to comics was a box of Silver Age Marvel issues that belonged to his older brother, and he was working as a sports and entertainment journalist when friend Jim Starlin convinced him to pitch a few stories to Marvel in 1990. Uh, These must have been Silver Surfer Volume 3, number 42 to 43. Uh, Mars co-created Janice Vell in Silver Surfer Annual number 6, 1993, with Ron Lim. And then he wrote Green Lantern, beginning with Volume 3, number 48, January 1994, drawn by Bill Willingham. He stayed on for the entire volume of the series, ending with Green Lantern number 181 in November 2004, drawn by Luke Ross, which ended that most whole volume, it, right? Most of it. He uh, he popped in and out because um, uh, Judd Winnick had an extended run in there, oh, and okay. I think Ben Robb did as well, but he did come back to close it out. So yeah, he, he, he left in the 2000s, but he came back at the end, but uh, that he did go to the end of the volume, mm-hmm. and he is the fellow that introduced Kyle Rayner. Certainly. Uh, in there. So in 1995, he had a brief run on Exo Manowar for Valiant Comics. And the next year, 1996, Mars wrote the DC Marvel All Access Limited series, which I think you did work, you did write about on, your, uh, on your blog. <laughs> That's, uh, anyway, and also the final night tie in Parallax Emerald Knight for DC Comics that we'll be talking about today. 
Certainly. Uh, Ron would go on to write the two-issue DC Dark Horse crossover, Batman Aliens, that ran March through April 1997 with art by Bernie Wrightson. Uh, he wrote several stories, uh, several series for cross-gen comics in the early 2000s, from 2000 to 2004. Uh, he's also done work with Top Cow in the 2000s, including Witchblade, which he wrote from issue 80, that was cover dated November 2004, through issue 150 in December 2011. And this included the crossovers Witchblade and the Punisher in 2000. 2007, as well as Witchblade and Devi, or Devi, in uh, 2008. Uh, other top cow work from Ron includes Cyberforce. Uh, this is the second or perhaps third volume of Cyberforce, <laughs> issues one through six in 2006, as well as the Cyberforce X-Men crossover in 2007. A seven-year run on Witchblade, that's no, uh, no laughing Nothing matter. to quaff at, yeah. yeah. sure. Uh, Ron wrote for a few titles for Devil's Due Publishing, including Blade of Kumori in 2004, this was for their Aftermath line. Mars wrote five-part series Samurai, he Samurai Heaven and Earth for Dark Horse in 2005, drawn by Luke Ross. He wrote volume two of the series again in five parts from 2006 to 2007. He also wrote Moonstone Books' 2006 annual featuring The Phantom. He was responsible for getting writers Chuck Dixon, Mike Bullock, Tony Bedard, and Rafael Nieves to contribute to the book. Mars became an editor of three Virgin Comics Shakti line titles in 2007. These were Devi, Ramayan 3392 AD, and The Sadhu. And these are Indian comics, if it's not clear, or if, mm -hmm. you, or if that matters. Yes. Uh, for Virgin Comics, Ron Mars wrote a three-issue Beyond series based on a story created by Deepak Chopra. In 2008, Mars wrote Broken Trinity for Top Cow, which featured the characters Witchblade, The Darkness, and Angelus. He also wrote the tie-in series Broken Trinity, Witchblade, Broken Trinity, Angelus in 2008, and Broken Trinity, Aftermath in 2009. And in 2008, Ron Maz signed an exclusive contract with Top Cow, which entailed three uh, comics a month, which would be two Top Cow Universe titles, as well as one creator-owned project. Uh, in 2011, he was writing Voodoo at the launch of DC Comics' New 52 initiative, uh, though he left after issue five due to editorial differences. Hey. A, lot, a lot of people did that at the beginning yeah, of the New 52. That was the thing, I think, at the time. Yeah, yeah I, I, you know, I actually left as a fan due to editorial <laughs> differences at that time. Uh, Ron would tell Newsarama at the time, the only thing I was told was that they wanted a different direction for the book. I had a 10-minute phone call with the outgoing editor who gave me the news. I asked what direction they wanted, but since the editor was leaving staff the next day, he didn't really know. So that's all the information I was given. I haven't heard from anyone else beyond a call from the book's new editor to work out details for my last issue. <laughs> and if it isn't clear, these were uh, rough times for uh, DC Comics. I, yeah. I, I like the picture he's on that phone call. The outgoing editor's got like a ficus in a box. and like you know, In a his, box. <laughs> he's got his uh, kids' pictures. He's like literally walking out the door, standing, holding the phone up. Yeah, I can't help you, buddy. I, you know, you'll figure it out. Yeah, like... yeah try the other guy. <laughs> uh, so Ron would move to, uh, from here, he would go to DC's Digital First Line and wrote a story for Legends of the Dark Knight and a memorable one for The Adventures of Superman, which featured art by Doc Shaner. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2014, Ron was tapped by the estate of Edgar Rice Burroughs to write new Tarzan and John Carter of Moz stories, published through Dynamite, which you got to figure was a pretty big deal since sure. he... Uh, Grew up on the stuff. Yeah, I mean, some of his favorite stuff. He loved, he was thrilled by it. Yeah, and he uh, writes Dread Gods for Ominous Press. That's published through IDW. Uh, that's drawn by the imprint owner, Bart Sears. Uh, Ron does own a stake. Uh, and he lives in upstate New York with 
four horses, three children, two dogs, and one wife. Yeah, that might be old information as far as the uh, animals are concerned. I can't yes. guarantee it. The wife is still there. Yes. Uh, now, a quick one about Mike McCone. We don't have a ton on him, but I did. The, we did the best we could here. <laughs> uh, he was born somewhere in England. Uh, hmm. He says... He narrows it down. <laughs> yep. We got the corner of the world. <laughs> uh, I took my portfolio to a convention and the editor-in-chief of DC Comics, which I'm thinking had to be Dick Giordano, took a oh, look okay. at it, and before I knew, I was drawing an issue with Justice League, and that was it. No struggle, no hardship. Straight on comics, straight into the industry. So, lucky break for Mike McCone. Uh, first gigs for DC Comics were Justice League International number 25, April 1989, cover date, inking for Ty Templeton. And Mr. Miracle Volume 2, number 6, July 1989, cover date. He also drew Punisher Warzone for Marvel from number 12, February 1993, to number 16, June 1993. Worked on Parallax, Emerald Knight number 1, November 1996, part of the final night event we're discussing today. And he would uh, pencil the six-issue miniseries Vexed from DC Comics. That was March to August 1999 with, uh, with words from Keith Giffen. Uh, in, 2000, in 2001, Mike provided art for the Fantastic Four Big Town miniseries. Uh, he drew Teen Titans Volume 3 beginning in 2003, be, uh, written by Jeff Johns, uh, and did, uh, did most of the issues uh, between 1 and 50 in October 2007. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike drew Fantastic Four from issue 527, that's July 2005, to 543 in May 2007. Uh, Mike was one of the contributing pencilers for the fi weekly 52 comic, which followed Infinite Crisis in 2007. He would have a long run on Amazing Spider-Man from issue 562 in August 2008 to 607 in November 2009, uh, drawing nearly all of them. Uh, he would come back to contribute to issue 660. This was July 2011 in a story by Fred Van Lenty and Dan Slott. Uh, this was an oversized issue uh, on the road to Spider Island. That yep. was a... Uh, and that started it. I think that started in issue six six six. That that sounds like it could be could be correct. They like to play with yeah. those issue numbers. Yeah. So I remember it was a Statue of Liberty with a Spider-Man mask on, basically. Yeah. Uh, now Mike was a, a fan of Spider-Man as a kid, making him incredibly unique among children who love comic books and superheroes. Right. Uh, who loves super, Who loves Spider-Man? I, I, I really, I mean, the, the, I laughed at that because you know I, I was looking at interviews and that's one of the things he said. And I said, I said to myself, I really like to see someone working on Spider-Man. It's like, hey, you know, I really hate the character, but it's a gig, you <laughs> know, never, like never a fan. Yeah, I really like the bills. <laughs> and at this point, uh, Mister. McConnell, he draws uh, covers for Marvel and DC. Yeah, he gets plenty of work, but uh, he only has to do covers, which is, as far as I know it and have seen it, it, it either means that you're getting tossed a bone, mm -hmm. or you are so in you're demand made, you don't even need to. You're a made person. Yeah, exactly. You don't even need to worry about doing the interiors. Now, uh, to start talking about Final Night, but we've got to lay some groundwork, talk about what came before uh, and why the characters in Final Night are doing what they're doing. So, uh, first, Hal goes batty, and we don't mean Batman, he goes truly nutty. In uh, <laughs> Reign of the Supermen, this is following the death of Superman and funeral for a friend, the super titles went on a four-month hiatus. Publication resu resumed with Adventures of Superman number 500, that was June 1993 cover, and introduced four new Supermen, quote-unquote. One of which appeared to be the real deal, only half of his body was comprised of cybernetic parts but he did look the most Supermanish. That was the yes. thing. He was quickly revealed to be a pretty bad dude. We'll have a whole lot more to say about these stories in the coming weeks, but for right now, that's all you need to know. He's not the true Superman, and 
by this time in the story, actually doesn't really even look that close to the way Superman. Anyway, but uh, that during Green Lantern Volume Three, Number Forty Six, October nineteen ninety three cover, Death City was the title. This cyborg Superman teams up with Mongol and Coast City, which is the home to Hal Jordan, and destroys it. Mm-hmm. And that leads into Emerald Twilight. So following the destruction of Coast City, Hal Jordan becomes abusive of his Green Lantern powers. The Guardians try and slap him down, which doesn't work out in their favor. <laughs> so Hal kills, uh, you know, de- de- deactivates right. Right. the Green Lantern Corps. <clears throat> but in, he does actually In the middle kill. of space. <laughs> yes, he deactivates them without air, but that's all right. Uh, he does actually barbecue Kilowog and break Sinestro's neck. Yep. Uh, but you wouldn't know that today. Um, now, he enters the power battery on Oa, absorbs its power, and leaves with a new supervillain outfit. Uh, using the last bit of Guardian energy, Ganthit uh, crafts one final Green Lantern ring, which he gives to a random Nine Inch Nails fan behind a CD bar. Uh, for deeper analysis of this storyline, you can check out Cosmic Treadmill Episode 5 in the archives, where we cover it in long form. Uh, for the immediate aftermath of Emerald Twilight, check out Cosmic Treadmill episode 39 in the archives, where we're introduced to an all-new Ringslinger. Wow, yeah, I never thought about that. We did basically do that whole storyline yep. now. <laughs> uh, also important to this will be the events of Zero Hour, a Crisis in Time, and that Hal Jordan, now as Parallax, attempts to remake the universe in a way that would undo, among other things, the destruction of Coast City, and uh, no kidding, he is unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. For nearly two hours of our brand of zero hour blah blah blah, blah you can check out Weird Comics History episode twenty in the archives. Uh, and then we got to talk about some of the things you'll be seeing in this comic. There is the Sun Eater. Uh, this is a character. Ish. <laughs> it's a <laughs> monster or something. A, a an essence that comes mm. from Jim Uder, Jim Shooter's Legion of Superheroes. In uh, Adventure Comics number 305, that was February 1963, covered by Jim Shooter, Alien Geniuses, the controllers, created Sun Eaters as a means of wiping out entire worlds, which they deemed to be too evil. Sounds They're, like a good plan, doesn't uh, it? Uh, what could go wrong? You know, <laughs> <laughs> A nice, quiet snuffing of the sun. It's like putting out a candle. What's the big deal? Sure. Uh, during the Legion of Superheroes storyline, The Fatal Five, which ran Adventure Comics number 352 to 353, that's January to February 1967, by Jim Shooter, Kurt Swan, and George Klein. Uh, and George Klein, Superboy and the gang learn that the Sun Eater is headed toward Earth. The Legion is extremely shorthanded to the point where they need to rely on one of the new members, Ferrolad and Princess Projecta, to pr- Projectra. Sorry, as well as having to reach out to a group of villains known as the Fatal Five to help them out. Now, during this, it's determined that the only way to stop the Sun Eater is by detonating a bomb inside of it. Superboy insists that he be the one to do it. However, Pharaoh Lad KOs the Metropolis Kid and takes the bomb himself. Mm-hmm. He dies valiantly while destroying the Sun Eater. Now, this is one of DC's earliest continuous stories taking place over several issues. Yeah. Now, which is uh, really cool to think of because uh, <laughs> we, we were talking off the air and it's like it's like we forget about the issue where Batman could breathe underwater because it's never mentioned. Again. Exactly, yeah, or whatever. You know, it's like uh, <laughs> Superman has hyperventriloquism or superventriloquism. Yes. But this is never something... Never referred to again. <laughs> and, you know, Jim Shooter, which we always, we have been threatening to do about a uh, episode on yes. him for a long time, He it's, it's essentially what he said he had planned to do, which is to bring the Marvel style of storytelling over to DC. And there, there you're looking at it. 
Absolutely. Now, the entire Silver Age Pharaoh story, Pharaoh Lad story, has been collected in one of those pricey, at 40 bucks DC Classics Library Editions, which is called The Legion of Superheroes, The Life and Death of Pharaoh Lad. That came out in 2009. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know that I'd say it's worth 40 bucks. If you can get it actually from your real library, you might want to look at it. It's, it's pretty sure. interesting. I really wish they had continued that series that of line collections. Is neat, yeah. It really is a neat line, but anyway, that's uh, neither here nor there. So there are other folks that contributed to the issues of Final Night. You know, we went in-depth on the one issue that we'll really be t uh, reading into, number four. But uh, there are other people who are involved, including Carl Kiesel, born January 7th, 1959 in Victor, New York. New York. His first comics work was featured in Newtown Showcase number four, April 1984, from DC Comics, where he inked a Bobcat story over San Stan Walk's pencils. He would move on to provide inks on various titles, including Legion of Superheroes, Amazing Man, The Crisis Coda, History of the DC Universe, and Legends. Together with then-wife Barbara Randall Kiesel, he co-wrote Hawk and Dove miniseries that saw Rob Liefeld's first professional work. Kiesel took over for Jerry Ordway as writer of Adventures of Superman during the reign of the Superman, and there he and artist Tom Grummet would co-create Con L, the 90s through Flashpoint Superboy. And uh, one of my favorite Superboys, if I can say mm -hmm. that. He also wrote, uh, it's kind of funny to say one of my favorite Superboys, but there it is. Uh, <laughs> he also wrote The Final Night, which we'll be chatting about any minute now. Certainly. But first, Stuart Eminem, the, uh, the fellow who drew all four issues of The Final Night. Uh, he was born and grew up somewhere in Canada, presumably on some date during the 20th century, and is of Finnish descent. Uh, his first comics work was a self-published series called Playground. Between 1990 and 1992, he drew revolutionary comics' rock and roll comics, including issues on Prince, Two Live Crew, Public Enemy, and ZZ Top. Uh, he would join DC Comics in 1993, drawing the Legion of Superheroes, and a few years later, the final night. All right, so let's just jump right into it. The first issue, final night number one. This is Dusk by Carl Kiesel and Stuart Eminen. This cover features the JLA standing atop the Daily Planet building as the snow comes down. It also bears the subtitle, Week 1, Armageddon. It's Metropolis on a bright and sunny final day. Mm. Briefly, it's as though there's a solar eclipse, but then it's just a disc-shaped craft passing by the sun. Luckily, Bruce Gordon is nowhere to be seen. And I guess we should, no. just, we should just say this. at the. It's so interesting that this is a an eclipse-based Yep. Thing and there's no <laughs> and eclipso. There. There's no eclipso. <laughs> anyway, that's all. It, 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 there isn't, so there's no reason to speak about it. Uh, the disc lands and out pops a cat-eyed woman. She's immediately greeted by Superman and the time-lost Legion of Superheroes. They were stuck in the present day at, the, at this point in continuity. She exits her craft and points to the skies while muttering in an alien language. As luck would have it, the Legionnaires' flight rings are equipped with universal translators. Hell, that must be like the Apple Watch version, uh, you yeah. know, 934 at that point, right? I think so, yeah. Uh, it's deduced that she is speaking of something called the Darkest Night. Not to be confused with the Blackest Night, which would come mm -hmm. about 10 years later. Uh, <laughs> where the Legionnaires come from, the Darkest Night is a tall tale told to children. Now, Saturn Girl uses her telepathy to link this alien woman's mind to Superman. It's here that we learn that her name is Dusk, and she comes with a warning regarding something called the Sun Eater, which we might assume might try and eat the sun. Uh, in fact, that's exactly what it's planning to do. And what's worse, Dusk arrived only a few hours ahead of it. 
Holy pariah, really. This is uh, just like that, but without all the crying over here. Without the crying. Yeah. <laughs> and now we transition to Dusk explaining this to a who's who of the DC Universe. Update 1996. <laughs> uh, Superman introduces Kitty Faulkner, who corroborates Dusk's claims. Uh, something strange this way comes with an ETA of about six hours. Dusk says that the Sun Eater is unstoppable. As she you know, she's seen this scene play out many times before. Really, just like Pariah. I mean, just just like literally it. the same type of uh, character. Anyway, uh, Big Barda ain't having none of this and suggests Mr. Miracle just boom-tube the Sun Eater packing to wherever boom-tubes want to send him, <laughs> probably to Apocalypse. Uh, Superman gives, the, gives that idea a thumbs up, but also suggests they come up with a plan B. And so he pulls together a team of heroes with heat and or light-based powers in hope of creating a decoy sun to throw the Sun Eater off the scent for a bit. Wonder Woman suggests calling the Spectre. Thankfully, Guy Gardner speaks some sense here. Yeah, he says here, Oh, Grim and Green? You ask me, he'd be happy if everyone was as dead as him. I knew I liked Guy for a reason. Definitely, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Superman tells Guy to stifle it and sends him to uh, meet up with Batman to join his, quote, ground team. Uh, we follow Team Boomtube, which consists of Mr. Miracle, Captain Atom, Tachyon, Dr. Polaris, Cosmic Boy, and Maxima. Wow. And they find themselves at an intersection point and floating right before the Sun Eater, which resembles like a, what, like a black hole or a vortex, maybe. Yeah. It's it, no body or anything. It doesn't just, seem uh, like an animal, uh, no. really. It seems more like a, a force of nature or something. Certainly. Now, uh, next, we shift to a meeting between the Phantom Stranger and the Spectre. <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, just as a man throws himself off a building to his death, or out a window to his death. Right. Uh, the, the Stranger asks the Spectre to consider acting, and, of course, being the Spectre, he refuses. Uh, I will take no action. <laughs> yes. The Spectre claims that as an agent of God, he's got to just let the big guy's will be done. I mean, it's kind of a cop-out answer, but that's really, that's what the Spectre always says. Nothing new for him. Now, he says if this is God's will, then he will not impose his own will over God's. Uh, fair enough. I understand. That is your boss, but it's yeah. still still a cop-out, still what he does every time. But I guess you have to check in with him on these, you know, world-level events or else people would sure. wonder, uh, what, where did you, why did you get the Spectre? Anyway, back with the boom tubers, Tachyon sees the plan ain't going to work, and so just before the tube hits critical mass, he shifts the team between seconds. Remember that, and that kind of gets them out of the uh, get the heat of whatever. Yeah. Uh, remember that plan B? Let's check it on Team Decoy Sun. The heat and light patrol, if you will. Uh, this team consists of Superman, Ultra Boy, Firestorm, Sentinel, which is Alan Scott in at this point. Uh, Green Lantern, this would be the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern, remember. The Ray, Fire, Alpha Centurion, and Light Lass, who you would, would really want to call Spark at this point. Hmm. Uh, it works, and they're able to construct a mini decoy sun, which the Sun Eater eats. So it's like, a, it's like an appetizer, basically. That's it. They made for him. <laughs> and then uh, before continuing on to the real sun, where the Sun Eater gets down to some real hardcore sun chomping right there. He had his son cocktail, and he went on to the main course. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, that's where this, this the first issue ends, but following the story portion, we get a, uh, instead of a letters page, we get a page that resembles a Star Labs Emergency Information Center web page, complete with browser and back arrows and all that good oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. And it, looks, <laughs> it looks like it's from 1996 as well, I'll tell you. <laughs> it does. I, I heard the dial-ups on it. <laughs> uh, now, it states that within 24 to 48 hours of the sun being devoured, Earth's Weather patterns will begin to react to the loss of its heat. 
And there's also a timeline. Yeah, it says day one. Sun out. Day two. Temperature drops. Wind and snowstorms begin. Day three. Crops die. Day four. Rainforests die. Oceans freeze. Day five. Earth no longer capable of supporting life. That's pretty quick. Kind of break Mm -hmm. it down. So, yeah, there are a bunch of tie-ins. This is an actual full-on DC event with tie-ins that went on for four weeks in a month. So, uh, week one tie-ins. These were all released on September 5th, 1996. We got Green Lantern Volume 3, number 80, titled The Light and Darkness by Ron Mars and J.H. Williams III. Dr. Light emerges from Kyle's power battery, where he'd been captive since a semi-recent Jordan family Christmas. Back in Green Lantern, Volume 3, number 36, that was February 1990, the same issue that featured Cal Ferris proposing marriage to Hal. The ensuing fight is no big thing. All Artie isn't up to date on Green Lantern no longer having a weakness to the color yellow. So he thinks he can pull the old okey-doke. So many have uh, you know, failed right around that time doing that. Uh, Kyle attempts to reason with Dr. Light, attempting to explaining that the sun has been eaten. Light selfishly but expectedly decides to abandon Earth to save himself. After visiting with his main squeeze, Donna Troy, Kyle heads out in hopes of finding a solution to the Earth's present crisis. We got uh, Power of Shazam, number 20. This is Shelter from the Storm by Jerry Ordway and Pete Krause, guest-starring Superman. Uh, Captain Marvel and Superman land a malfunctioning and snow-covered airplane. The rest of the Marvel family helps folks stranded in the snow, including a very, very, very pregnant woman. Uh, After helping to save the day, Superman heads back to Metropolis. There's Sovereign Seven, Seven, number 16, by Chris Claremont and Dwayne Turner. Running from April 1995 to June 1998, Sovereign Seven was a creator-owned title that took part in the actual DC Universe. It wasn't terribly unusual for the time. You can see also Young Heroes in Love for another one like this, though Sovereign Seven was the first of its era. It featured a, uh, get this, sevensome of heroes oh. who worked out of a sort of kind of saloon at the crossroads of reality or some such thing like that. Uh, Chris has a smattering of season se- of uh, these issues, thir- 36 issues, right, of Sovereign 7? Mm-hmm. I've got a few of them, but uh, unfortunately number 16 ain't one of them. <laughs> and uh, believe it or not, very few folks online talk about this series, so we're kind of at a disadvantage. Yeah, uh, so, you know, picked it up from uh, pieces, I guess, what we could gather <laughs> online. The entire series would be revealed as stories from a comic book. Well, that's meta, man. That's right. But So we're not really too bothered about covering this. It's pretty <laughs> much wiped itself out of existence upon conclusion. Uh, but to be fair, we've just discovered, we've just discussed Sovereign 7 longer than any other podcast in history. So give, us a, give us a pat on the back, folks. We deserve something. <laughs> We also have uh, Superman Volume 2, number 117, Sanctuary, by uh, Dan Jurgens and Ron Friends. Uh, the cover is made to look like an edition of the National Whisper tabloid. Uh, think the DC Comics version of the National Enquirer. Yeah. Uh, used notably during the reign of Superman to play off the, you know, which one is the real steel deal uncertainty. Uh, the headlines we get here are, Did aliens snuff out our sun with an artist's conception of the sun eater? Complete with a tooth-filled mouth. It's pretty great. Uh, there's also, where is Superman? Where did he go? We got Lex Luthor sighted. It's kind of like the Elvis sightings. We Instead of uh, Elvis, we got Lex. It's just a big, fat, bald man in a belly shirt gassing up his truck. Ooh. 
We have My Dinner with Turtle Boy, which is uh, pretty great. Yeah. And uh, Fish Woman Makes Media Splash with a picture of Lori Lamaris. Now, this story actually takes place prior to the final night number one and mostly has to do with Superman and Professor Hamilton at the Fortress of Solitude trying to aid the city of Candor. Candor. Uh, now, the story ends with the introduction of the Sun Eater threat and Superman heading to Metropolis. He's doing that a lot. Interesting, yeah. So this sort of would... Uh preview the right before final night number one that's cool yeah and i, I we did get the uh, we did get the reading order from that reading order website too so i don't know why this was here but it was that dang reading order website but anyway <laughs> uh final night number two darker grows the night is the title by kiesel and Eminem. the cover features a the end is here sign nearly buried in the snow draped over in a woman superman's cape batman's cowl and wonder woman's lasso it also bears the subtitle, Week 2, Chaos. We open with Jimmy Olsen delivering some expositional news, including a tidbit on Lex Luthor cutting his honeymoon short to devote LexCorp's resources to destroying the Sun Eater. Lex Luthor entered into sort of a kind of marriage of convenience with Contessa Erica and Alexandra de Portenza in Superman, The Man of Tomorrow, number 5, June 1996. This was Lex's eighth marriage, so, you know, his presumably his eighth honeymoon, so cutting it short was not a big deal. Not a big deal. Uh, after, spoiler alert, Lex becomes President of the United States, his first executive order has to do with firing missiles at her home. So Presidency has its advantages. Exactly. He's still Lex Luthor. <laughs> Uh, upon r- arrival, Lex meets and shakes hands with Superman. What? Mm. We shift over to Oracle's clock tower in Gotham City, where Babs is having a pretty rough time of it. She's uh, got a lot lot going on, as you might imagine. It's kind of crazy in the world. Wonder Woman calls in to report that she and several other heroes are attempting are attending to an apartment fire at the corner of Marston and Byrne. I think that's a reference to something. I think so. Uh, now, she's with Big Bada, The Ray, Captain Marvel Jr., and The Guardian. And she's really confused by people singing about it being the end of the world as they know it, but they feel fine. Uh, I guess she never heard R.E.M. at that point. You know, it definitely so. had been out for a while. Uh, the fire was caused by a young boy named Billy whose mother was cold, and so he decided to try and build a fire. Because fire and he is, did. Fire is hot, and he succeeded, <laughs> exactly. Uh, the Ray is approached by one of the women they, they saved, and fearing that this is the end of the world, she asks if he could take her home so she can see her family one last time. Now we shift over to the Louvre, where uh, Vandal Savage is chatting up the Mona Lisa. Seriously, he's talking to the painting. That's right. Uh, he claims that he had to bat- blackmail both Leonardo da Vinci as well as the model in order to get this painting done. He looks like he's you know, planning to take it, and really, the world's about to end, so who cares? Sure. Uh, well, Batman cares, because off in the shadows, he's been watching this monologue. Uh, after a brief tussle, uh, ends with Superman swooping in just in the nick of time to catch a handful of bat-destined bullets Savage had fired. Yeah, Batman says, still faster than a speeding bullet, as you can see. Superman replies with, <laughs> barely. <laughs> because you see, with the sun out, Superman's solar base powers have been greatly diminished. That's right. Uh, back in this will be important later, of course. You can imagine. Yes. <laughs> back in Metropolis, we meet the all-new Luther Brainiac team in the form of Lex and Brainiac Five from the Legion, which is I thought mm. was cool. Really uh, cool. This uh, this isn't the issue we're going full script on, but there's some choice Lex Luther lines that we had to <laughs> add here. Yeah, Brainiac Five is uh, he's complaining about everything. He's uh, he's complaining about what he has to work with, and he's like considering these primitive primitive systems. And Lex says, "What's that?" 
Speak up, Brainiac, isn't it? I hear you're from a world so amazingly advanced that you must have our problem already solved. And after a pause... No. Well then, follow me on this one, and tell me if I go too fast for you. What we need is a probe, something that can descend through the energy-draining Sun Eater and survive the million-degree temperature of the Sun itself. Oh, and we need to launch now. Yeah, Lex just deals it to Brainiac. It's yep. pretty great. Uh, now we jump to Opal City, where the Golden Age starman Ted Knight is listening to Rush Limbaugh. Uh, he's interrupted uh, by a visiting, uh, you know, few people from his uh, old team. Here we got the Flash, who's you know Jay Garrick, Liberty Bell, and Wildcat, and they ask if he's down for another costumed caper before the end of the world. Uh, he declines, preferring to keep monitoring the situation with his telescope. Which is actually what he always does in these in yep. these kind of situations. So everyone is <laughs> everyone's behaving as you everyone's can in character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, back at Star Labs, the Luther Brainiac team prepare to launch the probe in the form of Kyle Rayner. Luther insists Kyle go as deep as possible to show how much, if any, of the sun remains. Saturn girl, who is keeping in telepathic contact with contact with the Lantern. Uh, Saturn Girl, who is keeping in telepathic contact with the Lantern, reports that she's lost him. Uh-oh. Now, remember Dusk? Let's check back in with her. She's at her spacecraft chat- chatting with Black Canary, and she expands on her role in this whole Sun Eater mess. Meaning, yeah, I mean, she's basically Pariah from Crisis and Infinite Earths. That's basically the role she's playing here. Yeah, just minus the crying. Yep. Now, uh, after exiting the craft, they find themselves the target of an angry and sign-wielding mob. It's always good when they come with signs. Uh-huh. Uh, now, not really having anyone to blame, they focus their anger at the cat-eyed space lady who told them that the end was near. And they attack. Whoa. Uh, luckily, Flash, Nightwing, and Robin arrive to do some riot control. Unluckily, they, they get fairly well throttled. Yeah. It really isn't their best showing. Uh, in the foreground, we see a man in a curious mask looking on. Might that be Wild Dog? No. No? No. Uh, so we rejoin the Ray as he delivers that woman that he helped save to her village in her native land, which I believe was in South America, but I could be... Somewhere, uh, yeah. I could be just uh, seeing that as being implied. Uh, seeing the folks, he's overcome with empathy and monologues about how none of these people did anything wrong to deserve the sunless struggle. You know, as opposed to the rest of the planet, right? Yeah, they totally had it coming. <laughs> uh, so he uses heat and light powers. Some of my very favorite breakfast sauces. <laughs> to uh, heat and light the village for a second or two, anyway. Uh, back at the riot, our new masked friend makes his presence known, introducing himself as Pharaoh. Hmm. Oh. We jump into the week two tie-ins that were released September 11th, 1996 starting with Adventures of Superman number 540. This is Curtain Call by Carl Kiesel and Terry Dodson. It's here that we meet actress Nancy Nolan, who during a performance is approached by a young man in an iron mask. He's also carrying a burlap mask, uh, which is something she remembers. The young man introduces himself as Andrew, her son. Now, the theater roof buckles under the weight of the snow because the sun is still out, and uh, it caves in. The boy exhibits great strength, protecting his mother from the fallen beams. Uh, Superman arrives just in time to see this and offers the kid a hand. Together, they bandage and transport all the folks inside. Later on at the hospital, Superman introduces Ms. Nolan to her savior, the boy in the iron mask, who she doesn't remember from earlier. Uh, He introduces himself as her number one fan, Pharaoh. Uh, Later still, Pharaoh volunteers to deliver newspapers for the Daily Planet because he's able to uh, run on the third rail. 
Oh, well, that's nice. Sure. In Batman number 536, this one's Predation by B- Doug Mention, Kelly Jones. With his son out, Gotham City, much like the rest of the world, is left in the dark. Wouldn't you know it, this is when a bat-like creature chooses to terrorize the city. Batman assumes it to be Man-Bat, and would you look at that, it totally is. Whoa! Batman assumes this is due to the prolonged nighttime and strengthened the nocturnal beast inside. He saves his two-bit crook from becoming Man-Bat's dinner, and the issue wraps with Man-Bat escaping to the north and Batman giving chase. We have Green Arrow, Volume 2, Number 114, The Thousand Year Night by Chuck Dixon and William Rosado. This is uh, Connor Hawk Green, Green Arrow, of course, and he fights in the snow. Uh, this really isn't much of a tie-in. It just happens to occur while the sun is, you know, out. Right. Uh, and after Connor's plane has to make an emergency landing due to the buildup of snow and ice on the wings. Uh, another one we got is Supergirl, Volume 4, Number 3. Stories called And No Dawn to Follow the Darkness, written by Peter David, art by Gary Frank. Uh, Supergirl tries to keep the peace in Leesburg while people loot, uh, and while other people are infected with a uh, gorilla Grodd virus. Okay. Well, Grodd is there, and he slashes Supergirl, and she winds up infected herself. Uh, while uh, while not an official tie-in, the following issue, Supergirl number four, Belly of the Beast, is a direct continuation of the story. In it, Supergirl is able to break free of Grodd's control. Duh. Yeah, could have figured that. So, Final Night number three, titled Keeping Hope Alive by Kiesel and Eminem. The cover features Superman, Wonder Woman, Captain Marvel, and Green Lantern flying toward the reader from what appears to be an exploding planet. Body uh, bags. What? The, the go, planet... Go. Those are body bags. What are body bags? I don't... Really They're flying away from a scattered pile of body bags. Look a little bit closer. No way. Oh, God. Would you look at that? Yeah, this is somehow a whole lot darker than uh, the planet exploding. And I, yeah. I would have rather it be that, but okay. <laughs> we open with Guy Gardner and Pharaoh dragging Wildcat's body into the Warrior Bar grill and mash. Uh, they're using Guy's joint as a medical facility slash shelter. A, you know, a little bit of a... You know, medic. Before mm-hmm. the doctors can take a look at Wildcat, the power goes on the fritz. Luckily, Legionnaire Spark is there to pump some juice into the generator. As she works, she notices Pharaoh and thanks him for his help in saving Dusk. She also tosses him her Legion flight ring, just in case. He promises he'll return it to her when the day is saved. Now their talk is interrupted by a televised report from hell. Well, wherever Etric and the demon hangs out. I mean, it's got to be hell or hell adjacent, right? In <laughs> yes. the neighborhood, yeah. <laughs> now, he delivers a pretty awful rhyme. Yeah, I mean, he tries to rhyme warm with harm. I mean, come on. Do you know, do you know how English is spoken, Carl? Let's get with so. it. <laughs> now, he, he states that he and his brethren can save the Earth for, you know, a price. Uh, the Daily Planet responds the only way they know how. The headline reads, Earth to Demon. Go to hell. Mm. Uh, and, of course, this is a callback to the planet headline during DC's invasion event, which read, Earth to Aliens, go to hell. Yeah, uh, which is cool. Kind of a callback, too, to that old Daily News headline, Ford to New York City, drop dead, or something like there that. There you go. The 70s. Oh, maybe that's what it said, Earth to Aliens, drop dead. That might have been. That, that might have been it. But, yeah. uh, anyway, it's all, it's all <laughs> part of the same newspaper lineage. Sure. Meanwhile, Lex Luthor is delivering a press conference claiming that if worse should come to worse, he has a plan. Biospheres everywhere for everything dude is just coming across like the most alphaist alpha male on the planet i know really i i'm pretty sure he's already eyeing the white house at this point but <laughs> gotta be but obviously john burns you know uh you know businessman 
crafty businessman is given away to the uh, jock Lex Luthor right here. A little yes. <laughs> uh, brew that extra pot of coffee because our next stop is Specterville, where the green-clad ghoul is chatting up Gaia. Another <laughs> snore. Uh, we learn that he's doing as little as possible to keep the earth warm until he can deduce what God's will is. Now we now shift back to Opal City, where Ted Knight continues to watch the skies through his telescope. He notices a change in the sun's diameter, and uh, fearing it might just be his old eyes, he uh, calls his findings into Star Labs. Upon inspection, they corroborate his tired eyes and share what this might mean with the share what this might mean to the heroes, and of course Lex Luthor. Now the theory is that the sun isn't going to go down without a fight, and it's constantly trying to heal itself as the sun eater does its thing. Meaning that it will eventually overcorrect, and probably within the next 24 hours go hypernova, which isn't nearly as good as it sounds. No, it sounds great, not good. Uh, <laughs> Lex Luthor says, the good news is we certainly don't need to worry about freezing. To which Superman replies, how can you just stand there, Luthor? We must be able to do something. We, Kimosabi, without the sun, your powers are nearly gone. I really think you should leave this to the big boys. That is stone cold, and I, I I love him calling Superman chemosabi. Definitely, I mean he's been waiting. To, he's been waiting to say something like this for a long time, so he had it on deck. Now remember Dusk again. Let's check in on her. We we don't want to forget her for too long. She's in her craft, preparing to get out of Dodge, perhaps to warn the next solar system that the Sun Eater will threaten and wipe it out of existence. She doesn't uh, seem all that upset that the Earthlings are about to be snuffed out because of the riot. Hard to believe she's never seen anyone panic before, though, given her line of work. But apparently yeah, really. she thinks the Earthlings are very selfish and panicky. She doesn't like, <laughs> they should have a lot more decorum on, as the Earth is dying. Uh, before she can leave, she is visited by the Phantom Stranger, who gives her the It's a Wonderful Life treatment. She takes her around the world so she can observe the resilience and compassion that exists within the human spirit. Well, next stop for us, however, is that unnamed Spanish-speaking village where the Ray lay in bed, completely burnt out. He's visited by Zatanna and Fire. Fire fires up and plants one on the ray, Sleeping Beauty style, and he wakes up. And he's upset that he couldn't do more for this tiny village. Uh, Zatanna then pulls Firestar, Firestorm from the front lines so he can use his powers to warm up a few dozen people. Oh, well, that's nice. Which, which buys them, you know, a few hours at best. Uh, I guess the rest of the world can suck it. Hey, you know, I mean, at this point, as little or as much as you can do, you know, what's the damn difference? So, go. <laughs> Go ahead, keep six people warm, that's fine. There you go. Uh, now back with the Dusk and the Stranger. With Dusk and the Stranger, Dusk is convinced that Earth is worth saving now. And so the Phantom Stranger drops her back in that alley where the riot occurred, where she's again approached by some sign and torch-wielding metropolitans who offer to take her to Warrior's Bar. Aww. Aww see, they are nice Aww. people. Uh, we join Superman as he lands at the Kent farm, and all Pa can do is complain that the weather might cost him his crops this season, which is either him putting on a brave front or an illustration of how much faith he has in his son. Back at Warriors, Guy complains that this Valdarian nastiness precludes him from getting Blotto drunk. He walks past his trophy cases and sees his old Green Lantern gear and toast to better days. Suddenly, he's bathed in emerald light. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, what will come next? Anyway. <laughs> we got our week three tie-ins. They were released September 18th, 1996. We'll start with Action Comics number 727. This is Cold Comfort by David Michelini and Tom Grummet. Uh, the cover features the Superman memorial statue that was erected during funeral for a friend. 
it's now buried about waist deep in snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Superman fights looters in the snow. This is gonna this is gonna be a theme. Uh, now Clark Kent, <laughs> when not in costume, remembers that he had promised to fill in for Perry White, who was at this point battling cancer. He sees a news report from Jimmy Olsen uh, stating that three police battle suits were stolen from a police warehouse. He heads out as Superman to take them down. You know, I know Superman's got to maintain his alter ego of Clark Kent and, you know, vice versa, but he really should not take that job. You know, he should have been like, I'm sorry, I'm really over, I'm overextended here, you know, but anyway. Right. (laughs) That's like, I can't, I can't be the godfather to your son. I can't take your job as the head of uh, Daily Planet. I got a lot going on. Anyway, uh, Aquaman volume five, number 26 is titled Twilight by Peter David and Jim Calafiore. Aquaman saves some dolphins swimming in the frozen water, however, finds one has been gutted. Next to it, in its own blood, is written a threatening message in Japanese, which reads, Vengeance. That of, can't be good. No, that's probably something. something's going on there. Of note, during this issue, Aquaman names his submarine Ramona, which is almost certainly a nod to the longtime Aquaman artist Ramona Frayden. We have uh, Detective Comics number 703, Howling in the Dark by Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan. Uh, Gotham City plus got constant darkness equals a whole lot of chaos. Robin and the Huntress patrol together and attempt to keep the peace. Uh, throughout the issue, we meet Hank, a local talk radio host who's in quite the ranty and hopeless mood. He gets a call from the uh, from Otis, the former, the not the former Ratcatcher at this point. He's That's the right. current Ratcatcher. Rat yeah. <laughs> and this only emboldens his stance. Uh, after his on-air shift, he heads out and he's very nearly robbed, beaten, killed, whatever, uh, before Batman arrives to save him which may have given him a little bit of faith that things aren't so hopeless. Uh, the sun is still out, though, so there's there's that. Yeah, that kind of would diminish your hope a little bit, I think. A little bit. Uh, and then uh, finally in this week was Superboy, number, uh, Superboy Volume 4, number 33, Running Hot and Cold is the title, by Ron Mars and Raymond Bernardo, Bernardo. Superboy returns to his Hawaiian compound and watches a news report being delivered by his sort of kind of squeeze, Tana Moon. She is reporting on the Mauna Loa volcano where people have gathered with hopes of staying warm. Being as though it's basically the end of the world, a few members of Khan's cast decide to clear their consciences. His agent Rex Leach laments the fact that he's wasted his life being a con man. Rex's daughter Roxy Leach admits to Khan that she's in love with him. Which, you know, first, no duh. Mm-hmm. And second, she knows he's a clone, right? I mean, what is the deal? Maybe. It's like being in love with a toaster or something. Uh, <laughs> Roxy's confession is interrupted by the news feed going out and Superboy rushing off to check on Tana. He winds up fighting a lava creature, which you kind of expect any time a superhero book begins sniffing around volcanoes, right? <laughs> it's either going to be a lava creature or some, some lava flow is going to happen. Yes. Right? They, something red is going to happen. They should really be steering clear of volcanoes in general. They pretty much cause the eruptions to happen. Uh, we're going to take a little break here, Chris, to uh, mm-hmm. you know warm up our voices, prepare for the full-on discussion of Parallax Emerald Night Number One, and then finally close out this uh, final night. So uh, we'll do that when we get back in just a couple of minutes. What would happen if the sun disappeared? The sun is the closest star to Earth. Only thanks to the sun, life as we know it exists. Its light hits the surface of the planet, making it warm enough for living organisms to develop and live on. Plants convert solar energy into chemical energy. They give us oxygen to breathe. And so you can go to the beach and have a tan. But what would happen if the sun disappeared right now? Well, what do you think? Well, I don't know, but you know, let me take a wild guess. Um, it would get dark? 
Well, would we even notice that? How long would we be able to survive without the sun? <laughs> would it be cold enough for the Russians to consider moving to a different planet? <laughs> hey, welcome back. It's time for the main event of the evening. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about Parallax Emerald Knight number one. Story title, Emerald Knight, uh, by Ron Moss and Mike McCone. Now, the issue opens with Cyborg Superman floating through space, wondering just how he got there. He turns to see the source wall and acts as a with that that's the uh, the big wall of bodies that acts as a barrier yeah, between universes. These are all the old gods all yes. smashed into the source wall. And uh, he realizes that he's uh, just about as far out as it gets and he's uh, just about out of road. There's nowhere left for him to run. He's suddenly joined by Parallax, that is of course Hal Jordan. He's out for revenge, seeing as though uh, Cyborg played a pretty sizable role in the destruction of Coast City. Of course, that's back in Green Lantern Volume 3, Number 46, during the reign of the Superman. Mm -hmm. uh, and we also know that his that uh, Cyborg's partner in crime, Mongol, is already dead. He was a uh, he perished in Underworld Unleashed Number One, November 1995, and so Henshaw finds himself the final figure on Hal's intergalactic hit list. Uh oh, Cyborg Superman says. You'll accomplish nothing. You can't imprison me, much less defeat me. Superman thought he defeated me. I just kept coming back. I'm living energy inside this cybernetic body. To which Hal replies, I don't think you understand. I'm not here to capture you. I'm here to erase you from existence. And then Hal blasts the hell out of him with emerald energy while having an internal monologue. Which reads, Do I regret the things I've done? Of course. Only some sort of villain wouldn't feel remorse. For the core, more than anything. Some of them were my friends, others I'd never met. But they were all my brothers, and they got caught in the middle. After playing with Henshaw a bit, Hal grabs him by the throat. The cyborg is incredulous, not thinking Parallax strong enough to put him down for good. Hal informs him that he's not fighting alone. In fact, he's fighting alongside all the spirits of seven million Coast City casualties. The people of Coast City swarm and smother Henshaw until he blinks out of existence sort of construct people, by the way. This is, yes. They don't just reappear. <laughs> uh, this leaves Hal all alone. He admires the source wall for a bit while he ponders what could possibly be, be next for him. The cyborg was his final loose thread that he had to tie up. And Hal says, uh, Now I suddenly find myself aimless. And what have I truly accomplished except another death? I don't regret ex ending the cyborg's life. That was a deserved fate. But I'm also aware an act was once unthinkable to me. What kind of hero kills his enemy? What kind of hero is responsible for the death of his friends? Hal's thoughts are interrupted by the arrival of Kyle Rayner, who comes in peace. Yes, he's got a little, uh, a little construct of a dove, a dove. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> with a olive branch. Uh -huh. uh, now, uh, Hal says, uh, Hal's still monologuing here. He goes, I still can't get used to the costume, but he's made the job his. I'm almost proud. Now, Kyle, who's still, well, he's a wide-eyed newbie here. He stands in awe of the source wall. Amazing, isn't it? Being Green Lantern. Kyle says, what? Oh, yeah, it is. But you know that better than any, but you know that better than anybody, huh? I'm just trying to do the best I can. I envy you, you know. Everything must be so new to you, so fresh. Your whole future's in front of you. To which Kyle says, not so much, you know, considering the sun is about to explode and all and kill everybody he uh, knows. But that's kind of the reason he's here, after all. He asks Hal for help. 
Hal's still salty about the events in Zero Hours since the last time he tried to help his friends, they told him to pound sand after that. So And shot him in the chest with an arrow. That wasn't but, nice uh, either, yeah. <laughs> but uh, Kyle ain't going to give up. Earth is your home in an even larger sense than Coast City was. You can't turn your back on it. He says this as Hal's back is turned, by the way. Hal? I don't know. Hal asks Kyle to leave before snapping his fingers and making Kyle leave. <laughs> he wants to see this Sun Eater for himself. And so he goes and gets a big ol' eyeful. I don't know if I can do this. Now we rejoin Guy Gardner as he's trying to get a buzz on in his bar. And this is how he ended last issue, remember? He was annoyed that he couldn't do it. He toasts his old costume and is bathed in that green light. Which we now know signaled the arrival of Hal Jordan. Guy, upon seeing Hal sitting across the table, looks back at his bottle. Yeah, Guy says, maybe the stuff's working better than I thought. Now Hal assures him that he's not a figment of his imagination, and so Guy gets a little bit froggy. Hal assures him he's not there to throw down, he's only there to ask him a question. He says, at best we thought you were a jerk. At worst, maybe no better than the villains we were fighting. But you always got the job done. What made you keep going? You did everything you could to be a hero, even though you were despised. Why? Because I knew I was a hero and I didn't give a good damn what anybody else thought. To me, being a hero means doing the right thing, no matter the odds or anybody's opinion. You do what you gotta do. And so Hal thanks Guy and tells him that he was always glad to know he had his back and vanishes. Reappearing inside John Stewart's hospital room. At this point, John is crippled, having been injured by Darkseid's son, Graven, while leading the Dark Stars. Hal says, I heard what happened. I'm very sorry. John replies, You can't do this, Hal. You can't just appear and act like nothing's gone down. I haven't seen you since before everything. And so Hal takes him by the hand and helps him to his feet. John can walk again. Oh, saints be praised. <laughs> testify. Anyways. <laughs> He can stand again, at least. Yeah. Uh, we know he's standing. That's true. We don't see him, we don't see him <laughs> jog around or anything. No. Uh, and Hal vanishes, as he's been uh, doing a lot, and will continue. Uh, he, re he reappears at the grave of his hard-traveling homeboy, Oliver Queen. Uh, we're going to mention it again in a bit, but Ollie died in an explosion during Green Arrow, Volume 2, Number 101. He was uh, caught between losing his arm or losing his life, and he chose the latter. Uh, this is a notoriously difficult issue to find secondhand, as most shops overordered issue 100 and severely underordered issue 101. Huh. Uh, now, Hal stands there silently while being pelted with snow. That's right, just kind of occluding his the uh, panel as it goes on. Uh, it isn't made clear, however, clear here, however, that in Green Arrow Volume Three, Number One, April 2001, this is the Kevin Smith run. We learn that Hal resurrected Ollie during this scene. That volume of Green Arrow was severely delayed, and it was originally scheduled to hit shelves shortly after the final night, somewhere between 1996 and 1998. I wonder what the delay was, Chris. Can you think of what it might have been? Uh, uh, Green Lantern Volume 2 would end with issue 137, October 1998. Another, oh, that's Green Arrow Volume Oh, sorry, Green Arrow. And it ended with 137. <laughs> and this is another under-ordered, hard-to-find issue. This very issue features a DC Watch This Space page, I think the bullpen bulletins of uh, the former years, discussing the 1996 San Diego Comic-Con, which included the line, 
Even writer-director Kevin Smith, Clerks Mallrats, spent some time hanging around, and if rumors come true, KS might be hanging around DC more than ever. Hmm. Hey. Now the next stop on Hal's Magical Mystery Tour is Alaska, where he visits his old friend and confidant, Tom Kalamaku, who's keeping himself distracted from the end of the world by working on one of his planes. Uh, Tom is, uh, unlike everyone else, he's overjoyed mm-hmm. to see Hal, uh, having never lost faith in his old buddy. Yeah, he says, hey, I'm still working on my book about you. I think there's a draft in my workbench. I'm going to tell everyone what kind of hero you are, Hal. They need to be reminded. I can't stay, Tom. I have some th- things to do. Uh, I just wanted to see you again and say thank you. You should go inside. Be with your wife and kids. I'll try to give you an ending for your book. And with that, he vanishes. And reappears at Ferris Aircraft. Hey, Carol was there and she says, I wondered when you'd be showing up. You don't seem surprised to see me, Carol. You're the only one. Maybe I just know you better than anyone else. I'm not sure anybody knows me. Not anymore. Now Hal offers Carol safe passage to another universe, a place they can live together. Carol, perhaps knowing the real reason he's here, tells him no dice. And they say their final goodbyes, embrace, and kiss. And Hal vanishes. Reappearing in the Coast City crater, right next to the raggedy Annie-looking doll he sat beside the open of Emerald Twilight. Still, we're sitting right there. Right there. <laughs> uh, he decides, I guess no one would have gone in there uh, to get it, but anyway. Sure. Uh, he decides the time is right and purges Ganthit from his chest. What? Uh, apparently, the little blue bugger stowed away on Hal's person, a fact that wasn't lost on Hal. He knew it. He didn't just didn't try to do anything to rid himself of the Guardian. Well, well, well. Hal's just full of entities, isn't he? Uh, how come Ganthit didn't realize that uh, Parallel... Uh, no, no, that's a spoiler alert. We didn't get oh, there oh. yet. Yeah, that's something else. <laughs> So they argue back and forth a bit about the whole Emerald Twilight affair, with Ganthet ultimately apologizing for the Guardian's rigidness and finally offering Hal a new lantern ring. I do not excuse your deeds. That way it is yours to bear. Yet I do accept that the actions of my brothers greatly contributed to them. We erred, and I'm sorry. Nay, with a new ring in hand. It can be yours again, if you wish it. Hal looks at the ring, but he's decided that being a Green Lantern is part of the past he'd left behind. Getting the ring back won't make things right, regardless of what he thought prior to this. Plus, he realizes where he's going, he don't need no stinking rings. I mean, he's basically, like, way more powerful than a Green Lantern yeah. at this point. So, uh, Hal and Gantt part company. Hal causes Kyle Rayner to appeal in front of him and deliver the news. I want you to go to them, Kyle. Go to them. And tell them I'll help. Oh, that's swell. So the week four tie-ins, these were all released September 25, 1996. There was Flash Volume 2, number 119, titled Pray for Dawn by Brian Augustin, Mark Wade, and Paul Ryan. Wally saves some people in the snow. So it's just to let you remember, it's still cold out. Yes. Uh, then he visits his main squeeze, Linda, at the hospital, where they discuss Abracadabra's vision of an ice age from a few issues back. Plus, Anne Iris's future is still being a thing. Wally shares with Linda the news of the hypernova, and they argue the morality of whether or not she needs to report about it. In case you didn't know, she's a news reporter, and that's a moot point anyway, because phone lines are down, so how is she even going to get it to the news? Uh, Wally heads off to take care of some looters, and in the meantime, Linda is able to get dolled up and get her mug on TV, and inform the public that they're about to be vaporized. But she does so in such a way not to cause a riot. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, like, really. We're, we're not buying what, it either. What did she say it with a wink? I mean, what? Is, <laughs> <laughs> She's like, but we need to stay resilient. It's like, hell no. Oh, all right. So. If you say so, news lady. Anyway. <laughs> Now in uh, Hitman number eight, this is titled "The Night When the, the Night the Lights Went Out" by Garth Ennis and John McRae. With the sun out, Tommy and the gang hole up at Noonan's bar where they exchange stories. It's really only a tie-in in the sense that it occurs during the final night. Sure, we have a Legion of Superheroes volume four number eighty-six, "Heart of Iron" by Tom Payer, Tom McCraw, and Lee Moda. Uh, Brainiac Five tries to buy a pager, but he has no money. Uh, it's a pretty funny. They're looking for just stuff they can make things out of. So he uh, cool. he goes to buy pagers. It would have been very in time, in keeping with the times. I'll tell you. That. Absolutely. Now, a cosmic boy gives the time lost legionnaires a pep talk, and makes out with Saturn Girl, who's uh, worried about reading too many minds. Uh, plus, she thinks Lex Luthor is kind of creepy. She describes him as insect-like. Uh, Pharaoh is revealed to be a homeless boy named Andy. Andy, we you know we met him on that stage a while back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he really wants to pitch his idea for stopping the sun eater to Mr. Luther. Uh, he can also change his skin to iron. That's his superpower. Uh, despite the title of the story, we're not so sure he could change his heart to iron, though. Uh, his plan consists of being launched into the sun eater with a bomb, if you heard that before, yeah. and turning to iron before things go boom. He figures if he dies, nobody will miss him anyway. Oh, That's so sad. Yeah. Now Lex poo-poos the plan and turns to Kyle for another go. But Kyle vanishes in an emerald light. Hmm. At this point, probably go talk to a certain fellow named Parallax, but anyway. Maybe, maybe. Uh, Now Superman volunteers to take a one-way trip into the sun while a disappointed pharaoh looks on. He's like, that was my job. Anyway, uh, in in Robin number 35, titled Iced by Chuck Dixon and Staz Johnson, Robin and Spoiler deal with some bad dudes, one with a chainsaw, Uh and wind up trapped in a mattress store. Tim wakes Steph with a little mouth-to-mouth before she grabs him and probably, well, definitely sticks her tongue down his throat. They argue and then dig their way out, coming across an injured and unconscious couple. They continue their dig and run into Chainsaw Man again, and Robin jams the chainsaw with a batarang, causing the chain to break apart and cut the bad dude's cheek, and he faints. They finally managed to dig their way out and deliver the injured to the paramedics. Oh, and I get the Spectre, Volume 347. (laughs) You know I had Uh, to save this one for you there. (laughs) This is a use of power by John Ostrander and Tom Mandrake. Uh, The Spectre attempts to claim a soul who throws himself to his death rather than being caught. Didn't we already read that? Like three weeks ago, Uh, I thought. You know, what's going on? (laughs) The Spectre is joined by the Phantom Street. I know we read that. Yeah. now, they have the same sort of chat they did way back in the final night, number one. Spectre then meets with Gaia, and yeah, we already saw this scene, too. Wow. Uh, he mentions that there was once a man who was one of the greatest heroes, but who gave into his own darkness. He believes there's still a greatness within him, though, and a final sacrifice might just make everything right. We figure he's probably talking about Hal Jordan, considering we already read Parallax, number one, and uh, these captions actually... You know, yeah. show Hal Jordan. They're showing us Hal Jordan, so it's pretty yes. clear. Uh, I guess this this is just sort of like if you didn't, you know, if you just want all those Spectre scenes in one book from Final Night, That's here it. they are. They yeah. wrapped them all up for you, so you can have it all in your Spectre continuity. <laughs> uh, Superman, Man of Steel, number sixty-two, to build a fire by Louise Simonson and John Bogdanov. Superman saves a factory while we get a sort of parallel retelling of the last moments of Krypton. Professor Hamilton hopes that Earth's Final contribution to the universe 
will be as grand as Krypton's. Uh, and maybe it'll actually be Superman. Maybe he'll mm. live. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Tachyon number six, Dark Dawn by Paul Kupperberg and Aaron Lepresti. Now, what the hell's a Tachyon? Uh, yeah, he was a source elemental from New Genesis who starred in an ongoing series that ran for seven issues from June 1996 to December 1996. Ah. This is his penultimate issue. Uh, Tachyon recounts the fact that he took part in during the final night. However, the story really has nothing to do with the event. So, uh, sure glad we broke our backs tracking this one down, huh? You know, we this was back- a toughie. <laughs> Good God. Oh, well. And that leads us into final night number four. This title is The Final Night with a K by Carl Kiesel and Stuart Eminent. Kyle Rayner is returning from his, to his mind, unsuccessful chat with Hal Jordan and feels like quite the failure. He sees Wonder Woman and some Metropolitans loading up a supply helicopter and becomes hopeful that even without the sun, the Earth will be okay. Thank goodness for LexCorp brand biospheres. Wonder Woman's all, oh, you didn't know? <laughs> and tells him that the sun will likely vaporize the universe within the day. Uh, back at Star Labs, Lex and the gang decide the best offense might be a good defense. And so they have Wally West assemble a half million force field devices at super speed. Nice. We're assuming that he must have gone to engineering school at super speed as well. Exactly. We didn't know, yeah. we didn't know that was in his skill set. Uh, now, Luther hopes to deploy these units around the sun and figures that they can trap up to 97% of the sun's explosive energy, which would hopefully kill the sun eater and save the day. Now, obviously, since time is of the essence and they won't get a second chance... Lex suggests that they not enact this plan remotely. Instead, a volunteer will board Dusk's ship and fly up close to the sun to correct any unforeseen issues that may arise. This is intended as a one-way trip, by the way, obviously. Mm-hmm. Lex's first choice is, well, the fellow he'd already used as a probe once before, the returning Kyle Rayner. Kyle seems cool with it, however, before he can give the thumbs up, he vanishes. Didn't we already see that? Yeah, several times. It seems to okay. be what, that's what happens in this book. People just vanish when you need them. Uh, Lex is agog, and Batman decides it's time to pipe up, suggesting they just said Luther himself. After all, it's his plan. <laughs> Lex is all like, humana, humana, humana. Luckily for him, Superman decides to take the burden on himself. He figures if he gets caught in any solar nova mess, it'll just bring his superpowers back anyway. Easy peasy, right? Yeah, why not? Sure, right. In theory. (laughs) Now, as Superman leaves the room, the Legionnaires look on in awe. Maybe this is how he inspires them post-crisis. Or, or, you know, not, since they're already a thing. It's all hyper time, man. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Superman is leaving the room so he can head into another room and write a farewell letter to his wife, Lois. Before we or anyone knows it, Dusk's ship takes off. Saturn Girl scans the ship and... Uh-oh, that's not Superman on board. Superman frantically charges into the room to make this completely clear to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, instead of Superman, it's Pharaoh. The heroes panic, realizing that their only chance of survival, uh, that this is their only chance of survival, and their hopes are now in the hands of friggin' Pharaoh. Oh, yeah, and Pharaoh's probably going to die, so there's that, too. That's kind of what he does, though, but they, yeah. w- they wouldn't have too long to grieve, you know, because good, uh, yeah. the world's about to end, so... <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, Kyle returns and he's brought a friend, Hal Jordan, who suggests he can fix everything. Batman's all like, just like you fixed Co City, huh? Zero hour, extant, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that was you. 
Uh, Hal doesn't even dignify him with a response, which tickles us. I like that. Uh, Superman extends the hand of friendship, tells Hal that he always knew he'd be back. And Hal assures him that he's not back and vanishes. <laughs> now we, ship, we shift to a frantic pharaoh as he flies towards the sun. He radios in to apologize for not being able to return Sparks' Legion flight ring. Did somebody say ring? Mm -hmm. Well, Jordan might know a thing or two about how important those can be. He snatches Pharaoh from the ship and sends him home. And with that out of the way, Hal stands before the Sun Eater, knowing that the only way to beat it is to draw all of its energy into himself. And while reciting a paraphrase Green Lantern Oath, he does just that. In Darkest Night? Yeah. Really? If you're going to say it wrong anyway, you might as well have said in Final Night. That's the title of the, of the freaking series. Come on. <laughs> now, uh, moments pass, and we rejoin Pharaoh on Earth as he emerges from a building. And he finds that he has to shield his eyes away from the sunlight? Hooray! Well, we'll be damned. Hal did it. The heroes are overjoyed, not just because they're going to live another day, but because their friend is back as well. Kyle can't wait to thank him, but that's going to have to wait. Saturn Girl informs him that Hal did not survive. The final night wraps up with Superman and Batman atop the Daily Planet building having one of their semi-contentious post-crisis powwows. Mm -hmm. Today's subject, Hal Jordan. Doi. Uh, Superman is proud that Hal went out a hero, while Batman isn't so sure. Yeah, which sets a little tone for later on. And also, Kyle, don't worry, you will meet up with Hal in the past in a little <laughs> while. So you'll see, you'll be seeing him a few times. In different incarnations. Anyway, uh, epilogue to all this was Green Lantern, Volume 3, number 81. This is December 1996. Funeral for a Hero by Ron Mars and Daryl Banks. Released October 2, 1996. Deluxe cover. 395. Uh, comic shop, newsstand 175, right? Mm -hmm. Former Dark Stars John Stewart and Donna Troy arrive at the Coast City Crater. In the distance stands an emerald construct in the shape of a lantern-themed cathedral. A who's who of the DC Universe are converging on the spot. Donna reunites with former Titan teammate Nightwing, and they chat about their new civilian life. She voluntarily gave up her superpowers to prevent a possible future where she and Terry Long's son Robert, that's one of Chris's favorite fellas, mm -hmm. grows up to become the insanely evil and gaudy Lord Chaos. See, new Teen Titans, total chaos for details, or better yet, don't do that, right? That's a, no, no, don't Chris, ever do that. Chris's recommendation is avoid. Uh, <laughs> Donna's current beau, Kyle Rayner, is nearby, and so Donna introduces he and Dick. Uh, it's pretty crazy to consider that this is actually the first formal meeting of Dick and Kyle. Seems they'd already, you should think they'd be already acquainted yeah, by right? now, but no. Uh, they'd be kind of busy, I guess, with the uh, sure. final night and such. <laughs> uh, Dick pulls the Big Brother act and the whole, you better take care of her or bang zoom to the moon. It's kind of like a Ralph Cramden from The Honeymooners, minus the implied spousal abuse. That's right. It'll be uh, use someone else's boyfriend. Yes. Now, uh, Donna and Kyle look around the cathedral to see who is there to pay their respects. Uh, there are some folks we'd expect, like Carol Ferris, who uh, looks to have gotten a haircut between now and the last time we saw her. Nice. And uh, Tom Ixnay on the eye face pay Kalamaku. <laughs> uh, <laughs> also, a few former Green Lanterns that have survived. Um, some uh, folks who were at the time were considered fringe, like uh, John Constantine and Swamp Thing. Uh, this is a pretty big deal at the time. Any you know mainstream Constantine appearances, they, they seem pretty special. Yeah, I mean they were uh, they were both Vertigo at the time. You yeah, know? so it was exclusively just kind of yeah. strange thing. 
and we even have some old lantern villains who can't believe that Hal is dead, and uh, they're not there to celebrate either. Uh, as they uh, as the pair walk to their seats, we can see many more guests. We've got you know the Superman family, uh, Wonder Woman, Alan Scott's there, Jade, Wildcat. It looks like a black Captain Marvel, but I'm guessing that's a coloring error. Oh, okay. uh, we have Con- Connor Hawk, the Green Arrow, the Extreme Justice team, uh, with like the the heavy armored blue uh, booster gold and everything. We got a gaggle of speedsters, uh, including a very smiley impulse. I don't know why he's so happy. Uh, Jack Knight Starman is there, and even the Alpha Centurion. Who would invite him? I have no idea. Uh, in the rafters, we see the Bat family paying respects their way. And, you know, Dead Man's there, too, because why not? What are they going to they, sure. they can't keep him out, so he's <laughs> nope. just hanging around. Uh, Superman stands up to deliver the first eulogy. He is respectful, claiming that he might have known how better than many but definitely not as well as some, likely referring to the Lantern Corps and the folks from Ferris. Speaking of half of those, we got uh, some Lantern folks coming up. We got Guy Gardner and Jon Stewart take the podium next, and they give that whole tired, he was the best of us speech. Do they trade off back and forth? Do they have it all like, sequenced out nicely? You know, They were shtick, yeah. I say half, it's like, <laughs> it's like who's on first up there? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> next up is Black Canary, who is now without both of her hard-traveling heroes. Ollie died in Green Arrow, Volume 2, Number 101, October 1995. We mentioned that a little earlier, and she'll miss them both. Wally West goes next, and he's got a message which basically comes down to, it gets better. Thanks for that, Wally. And Carol yeah. Ferris might not agree, though in Ferris, <laughs> she's, she's up at the podium. She's not really taking this as poorly as one might expect. She's crying, but it doesn't seem like she's really in all that much pain. Though Hal, Hal has been kind of screwing up her life for years now, so she might actually feel yeah. somewhat relief, to be honest with you. <laughs> Those are tears of relief. Yep. Uh, now, finally, Hal's replacement, Kyle, takes the podium. He's conflicted, although he didn't know Hal all that well, uh, really at all, yep. outside of you know Hal wanting to kill him. Uh, he still feels as though he suffered a great loss. Uh, he makes it clear he isn't here to replace Hal, which is not unlike someone something everyone with a step-parent has heard before. Right. Uh, he ends his speech by opening the roof of the cathedral, revealing the sun which Hal died to bring back. And outside, Alan Scott lights up a spire-like monument with his green flame. And uh, at Superman's OK, Swamp Thing transforms Coast City Crater into a lush green paradise with some lantern-themed topiaries. Inside one, Kyle crafts an emerald statue of Hal. Instead of ending on that poignant note, we get Batman who gives us what basically amounts to... <laughs> I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. Even even at a funeral, I love what a it. Jerk. Thanks for that, Bats. He really is. A, it's a very singularly minded fella. Just but that the mood. that concludes plus an epilogue, all of Final Night, the uh, mm-hmm. DC Comics event from 1996. And I got to say, Chris, this is one I had not read before we did it for the show. I had kind of put it in my mind that this was one of DC's many events you know interchangeable yeah exactly and and the results to the universe is usually nothing or next to nothing so i figured you know not having heard about any cataclysmic shifts in this story i uh just could you you know how it is in in comics you'll get to it eventually yeah but you know there's that's a lot of comics when you get down to it that you'll get to (laughs) eventually but uh, i was totally wrong this was actually a really good uh interesting more of a character story this really wasn't This wasn't a crisis level event, and it didn't have to be. It didn't claim to be, but it, you know, even though it, it, the world was threatened, it was more about the character work, and it was more about Hal Jordan's redemption. I really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, it was a great story. I, this is one that uh, I, I reviewed on, on the site uh, a few months ago. I think it was like August. And uh, I thought it was going to be a refresher because I'd heard so much about it that I could have sworn I'd read it uh-huh. multiple times even. And I'm reading through it the, for the you know to to review it, and I'm like, I've never read this. Oh wow! <laughs> and it was just, and I and I own it like in trade and in singles, and it's like I've never read this. Yeah. So uh, it was a uh, it was quite a uh, surprise and uh, a pleasant surprise at that. I I thought this was a a fantastic little story. Um, it wasn't anything it, it you know it didn't claim to be. You know, it was just a like you said, it was a character study. It was a great look at. You know, you know, we were talking. It's uh, the Sun Eater shows up and eats the planet, eats the sun in the first issue. Yeah. So everything else is fallout. That's it's right. it's it's just you know, we don't have heroes fighting each other. We don't have arguments. We don't have the build up to a crisis. Just the crisis happens, and we're dealing with the fallout. It's it's you a know? very human story. Uh, yes. You know, and about the the it's not just about you know Hal dealing, but everyone how they're dealing with it, and even you see in the crossovers. Like, all right, it's time to get down to saving some lives in the snow. You know, like this mm-hmm. is this is how we deal with it. It's uh, I it's it's really cool. I really would recommend it to people that like that kind of stuff in DC that that are sick of these bombastic, overblown <laughs> things. Because you're right, like today, this would easily be twelve issues, if not oh, way, yeah. if not way longer. It would be and half, half of it would be heroes fighting each other. They would they'd be fighting themselves on who's going to be first to stop the Sun Eater. Then they wouldn't be able to <laughs> fight them. Then they'd fight themselves on who's going to be first to you know. Save the earth. It would be it would be so overblown. This is a much tighter, neater story. Uh, I just really enjoyed it. It's also for me personally. This is a time I've talked about this on the show. Right around the death of Superman, a little bit after that, that's more or less I walked away from comics, uh, superhero comics, for about ten years, even uh, up until about Identity Crisis. I think a little bit around then. Um, and so this was part of the, in my mind. This was part of what turned me off was all these new mm-hmm. legacy heroes that were turning on a new generation i felt i had no connection to it plus there were other things happening in the industry in my life i don't want to put it all you know this is yeah. i was a teenager growing into my early 20s but uh so looking at this this is the evidence of that connor hawk you got mm-hmm. uh you know new the new superboy which actually i liked him a lot you got mullet yeah. superman you got <laughs> wally west you got kyle rayner these are all guys that at the face of it, and definitely if at the time you handed me the comic, I would have said, what is going on? But looking at it, <laughs> it's uh, it's really is, this will bring you up to speed. The character work is that oh, yeah. good. You pretty much know who they are, and you realize that at the essence of it, at the core of it, and this is, again, you know, not to editorialize too much on the modern <laughs> comic, what you don't see now is that Kyle Rayner is still a hero, yep. right? Wally West is still a hero. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not like they're like secretly, you know, conspiring against the you know the JLA or something, or you know they're like, uh, you know, Manchurian candidates sent from the future. Yeah, no right? one's answering to the government. No yeah. one's, uh, you know, yeah. There's no Manchurian can, no Trojan horse. You it's... get that all the time now. You know what I mean? Like, yep. it, it gets to the point where when I see a new hero, I'm very skeptical. <laughs> uh, right now in the comics, for example, Lex Luthor's been a hero for a long time. And sure. I, st- I still don't believe it. It's been like two, two or three years that I'm like, ah, I don't know, he's going to turn any minute. And he will turn. <laughs> he will. But uh, <laughs> anyway, it's uh, I enjoyed it. And I, and I really appreciate the opportunity to have read this. Because I, I, like I say, I, I wanted to get to it eventually. It definitely was not on the uh, top ten list of sure. books I have to get to. So I might have come gotten around to it never. But I'm glad to have read it sooner rather than later. It was a cool deal. Nice, nice book. 
Very much. I think this is a. Uh, I, I was saying off the air that this the parallax issue I think is probably the the best thing Ron Mars has ever written. Yeah, it's just so well done, and it and it's basically you know Hal Jordan's magical mystery tour. It's just him going around, and and it's easy to read into it because I, I read into everything. That's my problem. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's why I get so little reading done is because I'm busy reading into things. Uh, and I I thought that every visit during that was poignant in a way that he was hoping someone would talk him out of doing what he knew he had to do. Right. Yeah. And uh, I love that because he gave everyone the opportunity to say, hey, Hal, don't do this. And, and he went to the people that would know him best, you know what I mean? Absolutely. That he thought that would want to be protective, but they all mm-hmm. – 201 supported him in being a hero. It's also brought him back to humanity because the last time that I would have remembered seeing him, which would have been probably the last time he was seen, was Zero Hour. Zero Hour. He was yeah. more like a monstrous god. You know, he wasn't yes. really even human. He looked human, but he wasn't even doing anything human anymore. He was so far above human at that point. Yeah, power wise. And I realized, like, so the, the fallout from this, the, the lasting result, what should have been at least, is how Jordan's <laughs> redemption. And yeah. Everyone else more or less goes back to where they were when it started, but Hal Jordan as a character, as you know, even as Parallax, redeems himself, and there would be more craziness to follow with him. But it's something I didn't know that it happened, and so later on, when Hal Jordan is rebirthed, or you know, goes through his uh, Jeff Johns rebirth, mm-hmm. and the JLA, most of the heroes are pretty much immediately accepting of him having come back, except for Batman. This is kind of the groundwork for that right here. Sure. Even at the funeral, Batman's not accepting him. So. Nope. <laughs> uh, really cool. I, you know, I tell you, if you're a DC fan and you know you've been hitting the highlights or whatever, uh, just like we're we're fans of DC and we didn't read this until recently, so yeah. I would say sink into it. It's not too hard to find the trade. Although no, to be honest, easy. you probably even find a lot of the comics, at least of the. Oh yeah, at least of the core event, I would think, right? I don't think it'd be too hard to find those. So you, you can find uh, you can find all of it except for Sovereign Seven and Tachyon. Yeah, he's anywhere. Do find Sovereign Seven and Tachyon, and you want to write in <laughs> with your full reviews of those uh, <laughs> issues. <laughs> you may feel free to do so at weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com, where you also talk about this event, whatever you like. Sure. You can find us on Facebook at facebook dot com slash cosmic tmail history. On Twitter at Cosmic T Mill. You can find me on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. We got our weekly writings every uh, week at Weird Science, well, most weeks at WeirdScienceDCComics.com and daily writings of Chris's at ChrisIsAnInfiniteEarth.com, which, from what I can see now, you only do books with Alex Ross covers. Is that how it is now, Chris? <laughs> That's the new, the new rule is the. <laughs> No, you've just had a lot of a lot of JSA, a lot of different ones from that. I've kind period. of fallen in love with that uh, that Justice Society run all over again. It's a, uh, it's a, it, and it's it's funny because I, uh, I was actually going to mention this a bit ago when you were talking about how uh, how you know this story is a good a good cross section or snapshot of a period of time where yeah. you could get caught up with everything, because I'm I'm reading, I read uh, DC Universe number zero which was a kind of a bridge between Countdown to Final Crisis and Final Crisis today. And it was, uh, I was so lost. It was from 2008. And uh, at the time, I was away from comics because of uh, financial reasons for about four months. But I did pick this book up because it was a 50-cent book. Right. And uh, and you figured number zero, right? How, yeah, how much lower on the ground floor can you get, right? I figured this will catch me up to what I missed in the past four months and get me ready for this next big event. Right. 
I couldn't explain a single page of it. <laughs> so it's like it, it, we talked about how because uh, they what I'm what I'm bringing this up for is because it relies so much on the various crises. Right. And uh, the uh, the JSA run that you talked about also goes into crises left and right. To where it's like you, you, your brain just pops and snaps, and you, you don't want to stop reading it. Yeah, <laughs> it's a uh, so that's why you'll probably see a lot of Alex Ross on my on my feed for a little There's while. There's nothing now. wrong with that, you know. And I did. I looked at that today. <laughs> I was like Grant Morrison and Jeff Johns, boing. You yes. know, I know they worked together on Fifty Two, <laughs> but this sounded like some little more uh, weird. It's almost like two opposing magnetic forces, right? Uh, yeah, but you can tell who wrote which pages. It's it, it's pretty clear. It definitely it definitely seemed uh, <laughs> it definitely seemed like a crazy crazy book with plenty of uh, nods to classic, you know, heroes and stuff. But anyway, every single day you got a new DC comic up there, and they're not, they aren't all from this one period. They could be from no, anywhere. Everybody. You go from you've done Silver Age all the way up to the modern comics that came out this year, I think, or at least last year or something like that. Mid fifties to last month. Yeah. yeah. You even do that's why you you did a Superman a little bit of that. So uh definitely check it out. Chris is on infiniteearth.com. I tell you every week and I will continue to do so. Thank you. Uh also we have our own image blog depository thing. <laughs> Uh, it's still got all those monitor things on it. We'll eventually do more with it. But if you want to see it, it's at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. And eh, maybe something will go up there. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, we definitely want to thank uh, we want to thank Luke for the suggestion. Yeah. And uh, also apologize for the delay because he did request this as I was reviewing it, which was right when we were in the middle of crisis or as we were finishing up with crisis. And uh -oh. we weren't, weren't exactly ready chomping to jump back into another dc event at that point. no or any event frankly you know i was <laughs> like i was like can we do uh garfield comic strips is that one we can can we do yes. an episode on that but no DC really pulled the ball away. I, I i can't thank him enough for the suggestion like i say I, we really i really enjoyed the heck out of this so i'm glad that i i read this sooner than i would have in my lifetime if not as soon mm -hmm. as we could have for the suggestion but if that's all we got for him chris you got anything else for him no that'll do it well, then I want to tell everyone to please keep it on the treadmill nocturnally. See you. All pirates, yes, they rob I. Sold I to the merchant ships. Minutes after they took I. From the bottomless pit. But my hand was made strong. By the end of the Almighty. We forward in this generation Triumphantly Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs